0: Do you remember, as a kid, having a favorite TV show or a radio show? Maybe it was one of those westerns, like Hopalong Cassidy or a detective show, maybe something like The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, or if you were watching TV about the time I was, it was uh, it was uh, G.I. Joe, or uh, a little later, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you know, top-notch shows right there. All these shows had a couple things in common. Number one, no moral shades of gray. No moral shades of gray. Characters are either all good or all bad. No in-between. Number two, all problems had to be wrapped up in 30 minutes. Maybe an hour if it was a very special episode. But most of the time, 30 minutes, done. Now, we know people aren't like that because we know that we're not like that. We know that we're not all good or all bad. Or more, more specifically, Lutheran Christians believe that we are 100% saint and 100% sinner at the same time. So why does our popular culture tend to treat people as either or? How come every time I make the mistake of going onto a social media site Or an online forum someone gets held up as an example as of either a very good person or a very bad person even though we know people aren't all good or all bad we seem to like simple narratives it's like it's like uh, the two minutes hate from george orwell's 1984 someone gets held up and you're supposed to hate that person or on the other hand you're supposed to think this person is wonderful and perfect There's never any in between. We have our checklists. Depending on who we are and what media we consume, we think we know who the good guys are or who the bad guys are. To be fair, checklists can be helpful. They can help us exercise good judgment. But our checklists are often far too narrow. They keep us sometimes from considering the broader questions. Jesus, who told the crowd... Just a few minutes before, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment, wants us to consider one question. Where do we find life? Where do we find life? Imagine for a moment that you were part of a pilgrim caravan to Jerusalem during the Festival of Booths. The festival, that is, the context for our Gospel reading today. When I'm talking about a booth, I'm not talking about what you sit at. At a restaurant, talking about a makeshift shelter that you would have out in the fields during harvest time. You might have traveled a long way to get there, perhaps from Galilee or modern-day Turkey or Egypt or Babylon. You might have spent the week in a makeshift shelter, which would have recalled the journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. There would have been processions and sacrifices, there would have been eating and drinking. By the way, this is the grape harvest here, so you know what would be present at the grape harvest. Be plenty of wine. So it would be a party atmosphere. On the last day of this week-long party, the big procession would happen. The priests would go to the pool of Siloam, followed by others bearing willow branches in bloom and fill a large golden pitcher. After returning to the temple, they would process around the altar, pouring the water out as a visible prayer to God to send the winter rains, the rains on which life depended. After a long, hot, dry summer, such rain was necessary if life was to continue for another year. But amid this procession, which is a prayer for continued life, you see Jesus stand up and say, Come to me. If you're thirsty, come to me. If you desire real life, come to me. In the context of a prayer for life, of a visible prayer for life, the water Jesus presents himself as the source of life itself. Jesus, of course, doesn't check the boxes for a lot of people. While some in the crowd are intrigued because of the signs, many raise an objection. He's not from here. He's from Galilee. Remember back in chapter 1 when Philip tells Nathanael that they found the Messiah. How does Nathanael respond? Can anything good Come out of Nazareth? Surely not. There's no way that a craftsman from a no account village in Galilee could be the Messiah. This was an objection that John's community had certainly heard about Jesus. Everyone knew where Jesus was from, everyone knew who his parents were. The Pharisees bring that up. They know that he doesn't check the boxes. Wrong family, wrong place, wrong class. But their checklist was too narrow. They focused on appearances and missed the broader reality before their eyes. Because Jesus' origin isn't Galilee. It isn't even Bethlehem. It's an open question whether or not John knew about Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, but ultimately it doesn't matter. Because way back in chapter 1, John tells us Jesus' origin. Jesus is the embodied Word of God, who was in the beginning with God. The Word always was. He has no beginning, just as he has no end. And Jesus embodies life itself. I beat this drum quite a bit during the past eight sermons or so, and I'm happy to do so again. So, and for confirmation, uh, youth, this is a, this is a theme that, that's going to keep coming up over and over and over again. All of Jesus' signs, all of Jesus' teachings point to abundant life. Every single sign Jesus does points to abundant life. The feeding of the 5,000 pointed to God's overwhelming abundance and care for our whole lives. For our whole selves, the walking on the water points to Jesus' mastery over the forces of chaos. While the wind blows and the waves roll, Jesus walks calmly, keeping those forces back just as he did at the dawn of creation. We must never mistake the significance of these signs or the significance of any of Jesus' words. They point to a reality greater than the one we think we inhabit. They point to real life. So where do we find life? In a time that's more divided, more online, more addicted than ever before, it's hard to find reality these days. Pundits say we've entered a post-truth age, which is terrifying. Very often we act like the Pharisees. I know... I know we pastors do. And this kind of conversation we have, in the gospel, we have in the gospel with the Pharisees saying, that's not the guy, can't be him, that sounds a lot like what my colleagues and I would talk about. Mind shut, checklists out, closed to any chance for transformation. But Jesus does not leave us like this. Jesus rescues us from our poor judgments, from our checklists, from our hardened hearts. Jesus, time and time again, refreshes us with the gift of life, renewed real life, which begins at this baptismal font and thousands like it, and flows through eternity. We are fed here with his body and blood. We hear the word of truth, In him is life, as John said back in chapter 1. And his life is the light of all people. All people. Not just those who look like us or think like us or vote like us. All people. Even for one like a royal official, collaborator with Herod's government, or a disabled man who can't even ask for help, Or a Samaritan woman with a difficult past. Or even for someone like Nicodemus. Did you notice he shows up here again? It's been a few chapters. Since chapter... And while he doesn't seem to be a believer yet, something's working on him. Something's going on with Nicodemus. Since chapter 3, Jesus' words have been working on him. Perhaps he's closer to experiencing that new birth that Jesus talked about. We'll just have to see as we go through John. So come forward today. Be fed with the bread of life and the cup of salvation. Let the word of God we hear today take root in our hearts. And whenever we find ourselves closed to his transforming love, may he bring us back here again to the word of God. To the table. Thanks be to God. Amen.